0: Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor. I'm a podcast host and really concerned about our understanding of biotechnology as it can solve problems in everyday life. And here's a problem that you don't want to have. Alpha-gal sensitivity. Now, what does that mean? Some of you have heard about this on NPR, maybe other sources, but it's a very unusual reaction that occurs to eating meat, and we'll talk about why it happens. Next week, we'll talk about a biotechnology solution, but it's such an interesting problem that I really wanted to talk to an expert first, just to frame what it is that the biotechnology is trying to solve. So today, we're going to talk with Dr. Jeffrey Wilson. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine allergy asthma and immunology at UVA Health in Charlottesville Virginia so welcome to the podcast dr. Wilson
1: Thank you dr. Ful it's good to be here thank you for having me
0: <laughs> oh yeah well this is really great I I've heard about this before and when we saw the innovations coming out in biotechnology around pigs, I started to rekindle a little interest in alpha-gal syndrome. So the big question is right off the top, what is alpha-gal syndrome?
1: Yeah, that, that is the question, and I could spend 20 or 30 minutes just going at that, but to try to <laughs> start with a nutshell, so, so alpha-gal syndrome, it's an allergic disorder. It occurs in individuals who make an allergic immune response to an oligosaccharide, and we call that oligosaccharide alpha gal. Um, and so it's short for galactose alpha one, three galactose. It is important to realize that there are other shorthand alpha gals out there in the biomedical community. So, but when we say alpha gal, it's gal, galactose alpha one, three galactose. And it's, it's interesting because it's only really been described that the, the alpha gal syndrome for a little over 10 years. And it was really first described as a a small cluster of cases in the southeastern U S but over the last 10, 15 years, we now recognize it affects quite a large number of folks in the the Eastern United States, uh, in parts of Midwest, but also, uh, people who live in parts of Europe, Asia, Australia, and Africa. Um, and, and getting a little bit more at what it is. So, so alpha gal, it is a sugar it's expressed in the muscle and secretions of non primate mammals. And so, If you're a person, for whatever reason, you start to make the IgE allergic antibody that recognizes alpha-gal, you're at risk for having allergic reactions if you consume mammalian meat, dairy, or maybe some other products um, that are made or come from mammals.
0: Okay. So this is just an oligosaccharide. So just basically just a linkage between two galactoses. It's a very simple molecule, right?
1: Yeah. so some, some would argue that when we talk about alpha-gal, we should be talking about a trisaccharide, but we know the antibodies mostly recognize the terminal two galactoses. So, our shorthand, we've referred to it as galactose, alpha-1-3-galactose, but it's exactly that. It's two galactoses with that specific alpha-1-3 linkage. Uh, and we know if, if you look in the, the non-primate mam- primate mammals, that the alpha-gal ends up linked to proteins, but also to lipids. And so it's still an evolving story. Is that relevant to understanding the allergy, uh, whether it's on a protein or a lipid?
0: Okay, so, so if you have sensitivity to this, what kind of symptoms does someone experience when they go have a hamburger?
1: Yeah, so the most commonly recognized manifestations of alpha-gal are, are really fairly classic for uh, allergic reactions in general. And so the big ones are, are people who break out in hives, uh, diffuse itch, uh, oftentimes in multiple parts of their body. Uh, there can be a respiratory component. There can be GI symptoms. Oftentimes people talk about GI cramping. And sometimes if you add it all up, we, we'd call it anaphylaxis. And, Rarely. It can be severe and people can end up in the emergency room or or sometimes in ICUs. That's not that that's not the average alpha-gal case, but but severe cases uh, do happen.
0: Wow. So it it means that you can't eat any kind of uh, you can't eat meat, basically, unless you could eat a primate. (laughs) Primates
1: are on the table and poultry and fish can be on the table. (laughs) (laughs)
0: I guess so. Um, But if you have the sensitivity, is it permanent?
1: Uh, That's a good question. And uh, for some people, it seems to be fairly durable. For others, it goes away. But I I think to really get at that question, you do need to ask the next question, which is, why do people become sensitive in the first place? Yeah. The short answer is, at least where we live, is tick bites. It's so tick bites lead to the initial sensitivity. And we also think uh, whether you continue to get tick bites is an important risk modifier for whether you continue to be sensitive. And so, you know, we did a study where we took people with a syndrome and we followed, and we just basically figured out were people having interval tick bites or not. And those who denied interval tick bites were much, much more likely to have a drop in the allergic antibodies to the sugar than those folks who told us that, no, I've continued to have tick bites. So so we think that tick is an important modifier, but we recognize there's there's other parts of this that uh, defy our current understanding.
0: So what kind of tick is this? Because like Lyme disease is a very specific tick. And is there a specific tr- tick that does the transmission?
1: So where we are in the United States, we think by far and away the dominant vector if you will. It's not quite the right terminology, but uh, sometimes I use vector to describe uh, the, the mechanism for sensitization. It's the Lone Star Tick. So it's Ambuloma Americanum. Um, and that, that fits many things. It fits what our patients tell us. It fits some emerging data that you can actually find the sugar expressed in the saliva of the Lone Star Tick. And it really fits uh, the map that we and others have been doing to figure out where alpha-gel syndrome exists in the United States. And so those areas that really have endemic Lone Star ticks are the same areas that really have an alpha-gel problem. Um, it's, it is possible, and we suspect that a small number of cases uh, in the U.S. could be caused by other ticks or possibly even other ectoparasites, for example, chiggers. We don't think that that's the common way it happens, but it probably can in a small number of cases. It, and, and part of this whole thing is getting also e- extrapolating outside the U.S. Um, where alpha Gel is a problem. It's highly associated with tick bites. And the lone star tick doesn't exist outside of North America. So we know that there's other ticks that can be good at doing it. And for example, in Europe, there's a tick called Ixodes ricinus that we think that that's the major vector. And in Australia, there's one called Exodes holocyclus.
0: Okay, so the thing that doesn't make sense to me is you mentioned that this is a, um, the alpha-gal oligosaccharide is in its saliva, and that this induces the immune response. But if this is also something that decorates cells, muscle cells, or lipids in animal products, why don't we have a normal response to that?
1: Yeah, so so it it gets to what I think is a really cool part of the alpha-gal story, which is, you know, the majority of us can eat mammalian prod can eat beef and pork and dairy and not have any problems. And so we tolerate it. And so we don't have allergic immunity. And by allergic immunity, it, it mostly means we're not making that IgE allergic antibody that recognizes the sugar. Part of the the really interesting part of the story though is we we actually all of us make antibodies that recognize alpha gal it's just not the allergic flavor of antibody so it's igg it's igm it's iga and those antibodies you know some could argue that they're what we call natural antibodies they they may actually have some anti-inflammatory activity Uh, so the long story short is that most of us Basically, everybody makes antibodies that recognize alpha-gal and we can exist in a state of tolerance and we can consume uh, beef and pork and do fine. It's the subset of people who get exposed to ticks where you get an immune switch. And so you drive this essentially a pro-inflammatory allergic immune response where you elicit the IgE allergic antibody. And then it's these people where you get the problem. And at the end of the day, going back to the beginning of your question, it speaks to, there's something uh, really interesting uh, and important about ticks and tick bites. It probably a little bit of it may have to do with uh, uh, the fact that ticks come through the skin and the skin seems to be a good place to elicit allergic immunity. But I also think it's telling us that there's something uh, very interesting about tick saliva and that it has, It probably has very good uh, intrinsic adjuvant activity that can help drive allergic immune responses. I think tick saliva has a lot to teach us as allergists.
2: No,
0: that's really cool. So we're speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Wilson. He's a physician and assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at UVA Health in Charlottesville, Virginia. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment.
2: Hey, Fulca,
0: what are you doing? I'm reading about a biotechnology conference in Bolivia. It's coming up on June 16th through 20th, 2021.
2: You're traveling to Bolivia? Nice job, Dr. Super Spreader. Don't go in public on airplanes, guy.
0: <laughs> no, not at all. It's virtual, which is great. All of the science and none of the hassle and expense of travel. Plus, no more conference swag bags and tumblers to end up in the landfill. It's an information exchange without the carbon and plastic crap footprint.
2: But your Spanish is awful. How can this possibly be productive? I've been to several
0: scientific conferences in Spanish-speaking countries, and it's a great way for me to practice my Spanish, especially since Sabado Gigante went off the air. It's amazing how well you can understand because the context is science. And a huge number of people speak Spanish anyway, so it's a great way for us to practice ways to communicate with a substantial number of people in the world. Plus, Bolivia is a cradle where many of our best fruits and vegetables come from. Tomatoes, potatoes, lots of others.
2: I don't know much about Bolivia, only that when I was a kid, my mom smacked me when I said Lake Titicaca. That's the problem. Bolivia, Peru,
0: Colombia, and other South American nations have amazing biological diversity, spectacular agriculture, and emerging biotechnological industries. They're working hard to make farming more sustainable and develop the most recent technologies. There's a lot of great science coming out of South America and Bolivia.
2: But where can I learn more?
0: Just visit biotecnologiabolivia.com for more information. The conference will cover everything from environment to medicine to nutrition to nanotechnology. Or follow on Facebook at Congreso Bolivia Innova.
2: This is an unpaid advertisement as a favor for the conference. Looking forward to seeing you there.
0: So now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Wilson. He's a physician and professor at UVA Health in Charlottesville, Virginia. And we're talking about alpha-gal syndrome, and alpha-gal, this unusual allergy that's transmitted by ticks. Now you mentioned that uh, when you have alpha-gal syndrome, you become sensitive to meat products from pork and beef. But you mentioned that you could eat chicken or, or fish. Is that correct, or 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 are they? Do they still also have some level of the oligosaccharide? Saccharide?
1: No, that that is absolutely correct. So they they do not have the enzyme to make the sugar, so they don't express alpha-gal. So folks who have alpha-gal syndrome. Part of their diet it is absolutely They do not have to be vegan. Uh, oftentimes, they they have to be mammal free, but poultry and fish, they're on the table.
0: Okay, I could do that. <laughs> I get. I guess the other um, the other thought is that there are um, other potential implications of being alpha gel sensitive because there are other places where animal products are used in human health, like heart valves and things like that, like pig valves. And, and is that a problem there?
1: Yeah, it's, it, we think it's a, a really, um, it's an evolving story. So meat allergy is the, the most commonly recognized issue with alpha-gal syndrome, but there's actually a lot of other things to consider. Uh, there are a host of products that are used medically that are derived from mammals in, in some fashion or another. Uh, as you point out, the, the porcine valves that are used in some heart surgeries Uh, But there's, there's other things. So uh, vascular surgeons use bovine patches in some of their vascular repairs. Uh, The monoclonal antibodies that are increasingly used as therapeutics. So some of those are made in cell lines that can Mm. lead to alpha-gal. And that that was actually relevant to the initial discovery. Uh, So the monoclonal antibody, cetuximab actually has a lot of alpha-gal on it. And that's something that People who have the syndrome need to be aware of. They're at high risk of anaphylaxing if they get it. Uh, there's, there's other things. So, uh, enzymes uh, such as uh, pancrelipase, uh, armor thyroid. We recently have a paper that looked at uh, alpha gal that's present on CROFAB antivenom and, and even gel caps, right? A lot of gel caps people eat all the time uh, or, or use uh, for ibuprofen and things like that. So the gel cap is made with gelatin and some gelatin is derived from mammals. Um the question, it, it sort of gets broken down into two camps, I think. There's the, the, the things that can lead to the possibility of immediate reactions, right? And so that can be people who get IV infusion of cetuximab. They can anaphylax. Uh, and then there is some risk of, of people who ingest uh, gel caps or pancreal that they could have more, uh, more classic allergic manifestations. Some of our questions and concerns with things like the porcine valves and the bovine patches, it, it's less about uh, immediate sort of anaphylactic allergic responses. Part of it is, uh, could, could there just be a pro-inflammatory response that leads to early degeneration of the valve or the patch? And, and clearly that becomes interesting because you don't want to put a valve or a patch into a person who would be at risk for early degeneration because that that calls for more surgeries and things can get complex. So that's been one of the interests in the field is to figure out uh, is there really early degeneration or not. I would say the data has been mixed, but I, I think it's something that uh, should be explored more.
0: You know, one question that I didn't ask you that probably is extremely important to the listener is how common is this?
1: <laughs> yeah. So there has not been great epidemiology, but, uh, from, you know, recent investigation, we're pretty sure that there's thousands, t- 10,000, 20,000. We, we're not sure how many thousands of cases in the U S of bona fide alpha gal syndrome, people who have, uh, uh, delayed allergic reactions to red meat, which I should say, I don't think I mentioned before, alpha-gal is a little unusual in that uh, the symptoms are usually delayed before the onset, which separates it from a lot of other food allergies. So it's not terribly common, but it's not uncommon. We've also been interested to look at the, the prevalence of people uh, doing population-based studies, just surveying uh, who has the allergic antibody in their blood And so there will be some people who actually have some evidence of the allergic antibody, but don't necessarily manifest uh, overt symptoms. But for that number, we see upwards of 20% of the population uh, in parts of the Southeast, including where we are in Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, places like that. So maybe up to one in five have some risk, not saying that one in five have overt alpha-gal syndrome, um, but but some risk for it.
0: And, and the other interesting epidemiological question is that this is a rather recent phenomenon, as you've mentioned, or at least was recently recognized. And why do you think that this is something that we didn't have in the 50s, 60s, 70s, or 90s, for that matter?
1: Yeah, that, it's a great question. And I think, yeah, it's on one hand, it's possible that ticks are a bigger problem than they used to be. And so if, if tick bites are really emerging in a way that they didn't used to be a problem, that could partly explain it. My personal bias is that alpha-gal syndrome has been with us for a long time. And essentially it just hasn't been recognized. Uh, again, it's important to, to realize that alpha-gal breaks some of the normal rules of how food allergy is supposed to work. Most food allergies happen really fast. If you're a kid with a peanut allergy, and you eat a peanut, you get symptoms really quick. gal can have this delay of, of going out three, five, six, seven hours, and it can make it really hard for a patient or a provider or even an allergist to just immediately connect the dots and say, I think these allergic symptoms that you're having at three in the morning was the steak you had for dinner. That was hard. That's, that's a hard leap to make. It's, it's broken a lot of the rules in allergy. And I would say the other thing, which is uh, physicians are pretty good at diagnosing things when we hear clinical history and we have a test. But until you have a test, uh, sometimes we're not so good at making sense of things. And so it wasn't until the AlphaGal IgE test came about in, in about 2010 I think really that was a game changer.
0: Yeah. So once you're trying to, once you have a means to detect it, you start to find it. Correct. (laughs) Well, I guess the other, you know, just if you pardon the conspiratorial thinking, you know, in the age of COVID, you got to at least think about it. You know, Bill Gates was a big um, investor in Beyond Foods, right? And maybe (laughs) they planted the ticks. I don't know. Well, well, if you do get this um, and say, you know, you're unfortunately stricken with the sensitivity and have a really... Penetrant case that 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 very strong reactions. What's the best therapy, and what's the long term prognosis of someone with that allergy?
1: Yeah, again, pro- prognosis varies in terms of growing out of it or not growing out of it. And a lot of it's case by case scenario. Um, the, fundamentally, it it becomes a matter. It, at least at the moment, it's a matter of diet and education, and so it's talking with a patient about what alpha-gal syndrome is, why it's happened, and how tailoring their diet for the most part is gonna do the things that we need to do. So if if you stay away from beef and pork, in some cases dairy, not all patients actually need to avoid dairy. In some cases gelatin, not all patients need to avoid gelatin. So the big thing is tailoring a diet Um, and then playing it out over time. I'm increasingly counseling my patients uh, on the importance of avoiding more tick bites because that's actually part of the management plan if you want to increase the odds of growing out of it. There is a chance going forward that there could be um, some medications or immune-modulating therapies uh, that are available that that might might help patients. Uh, And, you know, Segwaying into your guest next week, uh, the the new thing that is just becoming available uh, is the possibility of of eating uh, pork that's been genetically modified so it doesn't express alpha-gal. And this is a brand new development and it's going to be an exciting probable game changer um, in my clinic.
0: Well, thank you for not making me have to tease that. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, that was really, it's where we're going next week. So now that we've talked about the problem, we're talking about the solution. So what, what uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that one? I mean, it's, it's basically pigs that have been engineered not to produce this enzyme, I mean, or this, um, this uh, oligosaccharide, but, you know, is there uh, any, are they just normal pigs that don't evoke this response?
1: I should let the experts answer the question, but it, my view is, yeah, it's uh, these these are pigs that are otherwise normal pigs with the, the caveat that the enzyme, which is responsible for synthesizing the sugar. And so again, our sugar is galactose alpha-1-3 galactose, and there's a specific enzyme called an alpha-1-3 galactosyl transferase. And so by modifying that enzyme in the pig and rendering it dysfunctional, you've made a pig that's otherwise normal. It just doesn't express the sugar. So in many ways, it, it from an alpha-gal perspective, it's been humanized. Um, and that is to say that, that humans and higher primates, we actually also have the enzyme in our genome to encode the sugar it's just via evolution, it's undergone a series of mutations and it's been rendered dysfunctional. So we're still mammals, we're connected to our mammalian lineage, we have the enzyme, it just doesn't work anymore. And by analogy, uh, that's, what, uh, that's what this group has been able to do with the pig, is that uh, they specifically targeted the enzyme. No enzyme, no sugar.
0: Awesome. So join us next week for some uh, hot oligosaccharide talk with the about the uh, genetic engineering step to eliminate this. So this really appreciate you coming out with me today. So, Dr. Jeffrey Wilson, thank you so much for joining me and talking and introducing this really interesting topic.
1: Thank you, Dr. Fult. I appreciate you having me.
0: And so we'll continue the story next week and talk about the specific genetic engineering solution that hopes to solve this problem for people who are unfortunately stricken with the sensitivity, especially because it's a rather rare thing. There's unlikely to be major investment in therapeutics or study around it. So, eliminating the sensitivity from the standpoint of the pig simply with a genetic engineering step could have profound impacts, not only in meat consumption but also in using xenographic transplants as pigs can, ab- can be used for heart valves and other parts. So we'll talk about that next week on the Talking Biotech podcast. Thank you very, very much for listening and we'll talk to you
2: again next week. The Talking Biotech podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are. But it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us if it's a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. I
0: moved to a different place here in Florida, and my uh, wife shows up with a Lone Star tick on her. (laughs) So I gave her a ham sandwich the next day. She did fine.